from the Obama years and I don't know I mean I don't remember activism or groups back when Bush was in office because I just wasn't as politically active or aware myself um, I'm still not that much but I definitely was less aware but it's definitely it seems like during the Obama years a lot of things kind of went unchallenged by by the like the core the, the, the main base of people who voted for him what I was thinking was oh like the Affordable Care Act itself was really was really um it wasn't great like, there were a lot of things you could critique about it no matter what side you were on but there was also a lot of in the context of the like the the political environment in which he created that it's kind of amazing he got it passed at all and uh i don't know and the drone strikes that were taking place and a, a, there were, there were lots of things to be critical about with obama but then in general there was still very strong republican set of the government in the house and in the senate who were enacting a lot, who were doing a lot, and people weren't really mobilized against them that much. There were, there were attacks on Planned Parenthood, they're getting worse now, but there were still then. I remember during the, during the Obama years, they, they did these things where they added new like statutes or something that each Planned Parenthood had to basically um, uphold the same strictures or regulations that an emergency department would have so like they could get criticized for the size of their hallways because they couldn't have a gurney down it even though they never needed to do that in fact like most abortions are outpatient visits and they would know so yeah, there were things like that going on that people weren't aware of or they they've, they were kind of sitting on their low resting on their laurels and that complacency didn't seem as dangerous then but it could also be kind of what why Trump is in office too. There were a lot of people who didn't vote. There were a lot of people who maybe weren't as aware of how dangerous this could be. And maybe that is a silver lining. And in a long enough time span, if that political movement gets gets momentum, it could be huge. Ten years from now, we could be like, thanks, Trump. I, that's being super optimistic. <laughs> but you, you never know, at least. And we do still have Bernie out there. You know, like he, as a figurehead... He's immensely popular, even still. Except with the Democrats. Well, I mean, they need to get their, their heads out I of their was, butts a little bit. I, I mean, it, it's basically for the mainstream Democrats, Bernie Sanders, he's just, I don't know why he still does anything with them politically. Like, he is a pariah. Like, I was arguing with somebody accidentally on Twitter. Um, and by accidentally, I mean, I didn't mean to argue, but of course it's Twitter, so everybody likes to argue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like... I was pointing out that, you know, like, all they're doing is crapping on Bernie Sanders. And then it's just a laundry list of nitpick things about him that aren't actually different from any other Democrat, including Hillary Clinton's position. They had to poison that well to help Hillary get nominated. And it was stu- it was bad. It was misguided. And in some cases, actually corrupt. But now they have to drink from that well. Like, Bernie's incredibly popular. And they're still just not realizing, it, it, like, he's in it, it, the, the power of that and the amount of people actually behind that and getting motivated in that way. I think they want to try to capitalize off of that movement, but at the same time, trying to, like, distance themselves from him, it seems like such a weird thing. Like, just for, 
ask for, apologize and move on. State that the things that happened weren't great and, and like reconsolidate back each other. Like, yeah, it seems so weird well, to me. They're not going to. I don't think, I mean, maybe after they terribly do awful in the midterm election, maybe. God, because I hope not. the pro, well, I think they're going to because yeah. if you look at the DNC race. They put Obama war, made sure to put a, a pro, you know, I don't know what you call it, third way Democrat guy in there to go against the guy that Bernie favored. Like, there's no reason to challenge, it, especially when everybody's like, "Oh, well, their politics are basically the same." Like, there's no no reason to do that, but yet they had to make sure that their guy got in and not the guy that Bernie liked. Because they've established, unless they were just out. Right, corrupt and and trying to silence a certain voice in their party. They have they've established already a rule in this game, which is that Democrats aren't socialists and that or Democrats aren't Bernie Democrats. The the main core of them are more like Hillary Democrats. So once you establish that rule, it's like, well, you got to keep it going because it kind of makes us look like jerks, people who did something based not on our political ideology as much as. Other factors, like like supporting somebody already that has a lot of power and things like that, like they kind of have to start backing up that sh- those decisions, and that sucks. Yeah, and like uh, I don't know if you've seen like the town hall things with Nancy Pelosi. There is one guy, mm-hmm. I think Trevor Hill. I want to say was his name. I know um, who you're talking about. He's also now a DSA member, which is awesome. Uh, he joined after that. Um, uh, but he, he asked Nancy Pelosi, uh, we'll, we'll put a link to it because he says it really eloquently, but basically he says, obviously there's problems with capitalism. Uh, he's like, I don't want you to like make a statement against capitalism, but don't you recognize that like this is a problem, <laughs> like capitalism is a problem? And she goes, look, we're capitalists. Like the... She's like, nope, we're capitalists. It's right. it's fine. It's never gonna be anything. And somebody more recently had asked her, like, would the DN for the next the twenty I think eighteen? I don't know how often they do conventions, but for the next convention for the Democrats when they put together, you know, their program, would single payer be in that? And she just categorically said, nope. It, the majority of people want it. It's it's somewhat within the Democrats' wheelhouse, although like they, they keep moving to the right. But just nope, straight up nope, because that's something Bernie Sanders wants. If I mean, it I conflicts, if idea, if social ideology conflicts with like business ties and bank ties, like that's the Democrats are showing that, that they're going to choose the latter. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for a very long time, the Democrats and the Republicans have both been parties of capitalism, different sectors of capitalism, and then they carve out, you know, so they have the businesses that support the Democrats and the businesses that support the Republicans. And then there's, you know, some, some that could go either way, but like, for example, fossil fuel industry, that's Republicans. And, you know, you can find other ones that used to be kind of banks were Democrats, but now I think they're kind of on both sides, but you get the idea is that there's, there's industries that support the two. And then the parties would kind of carve out social things that the, that their capitalist backers didn't care much about one way or the other. You know, like, should we teach evolution in schools? Or are, is it okay to be gay? Or whatever. Like, all of these kind of things. Um, I think what we're seeing is the that with Bernie is he's testing whether or not the, the Democratic Party will, in fact, always be a party, a pro-capitalist party. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, just like the young man that you mentioned a minute ago, and, and I think a lot of Democrats, they don't want it to be a pro-capitalist party anymore. And I think it'll be interesting to see exactly how that plays out. Like, on, on the Republican side, when you had the kind of Tea Party uprising, they became a wing of the Republican Party. And maybe that's what'll happen with the Democrats. I mean, I think what's interesting is if you compare us to a lot of European countries, the idea of a more than two-party system is integrated into the the format of their politics, where it's not here. Where, you know, the, the American system is really kind of built on being a two-party system. And so I think being a wing of a party is that might be why that happens more often is just like the rules of the system are set up that way. Oh yeah. And uh, it wouldn't be the first time that a political party died though and was replaced by another one. It hasn't happened in a long time, but it it has happened in our history. Well, I think if we want to make any progress, the Democrats have to, their party just has to go. They're I mean they've proven that they just don't care and I think the people who run it are too entrenched into it. And like you said, the system is just so entrenched in that. I think you, we do just need a third option, um, which maybe is a good time to segue into what people have been doing. Um, a bright spot is um, groups like the Democratic Socialists of America, which I'm, you know, it, it, I don't know if anybody ever listens to the end of this. This is ostensibly uh, part of the Madison Democratic Socialists of America, this podcast. And I'm actually now the chair of that. Uh, Red is a member. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, when Bernie Sanders announced his run for election, the Democratic Socialists of America nationally had 6,000 members. Today, we're over 20,000. Wow. Uh, when Trump was elected, I believe we got 4,000 new members in one day. Um, so yeah, the silver lining is there are people who are looking to actually fight back and do stuff. Um, and uh, another uh, why I think DSA in particular is pretty important is there's a really good article from Jacobin that we'll have to link to call or they had a whole issue um, just about like a left wing party like what do we need for a socialist or labor party or socialist labor party <clears throat> and um, there's a good article by Seth uh, Ackerman I think is how you pronounce his last name and he was you know highlighting the problems of a third party like you mentioned like the two parties are entrenched so the way he was advocating going about it is you have not exactly a party but a 501c4 which is a not a non-profit but it's similar to that but it's a political thing so um you know they can engage in politics and whatnot whereas non-profits are supposed to be uh, basically apolitical the dsa is one of these and basically what he was arguing is that what a group like the DSA should do is you support in the main Democratic Party, if there's left-wing candidates, like far-left people, you support them. Otherwise, like at the local level and stuff, like you run people. You run people from the DSA and whatnot, and that's how you build up enough power where you can actually decide maybe to become an actual party and try and take them over. And that is something that DSA is doing. I think right now we have 14 city council people across the country and with the midterm elections we're looking you know i think it looks pretty good that we'll get more at city levels and maybe even a few at some state levels that's great you know one that made a big splash when it happened was in seattle when kashama sawant 
was elected was she a city council i think she yeah she's in the city council and she's socialist alternative yeah, yeah so a different group but still like a local socialist group and i think i think her salary is uh, as being on there is like seventy five thousand a year and she's giving half of it back to socialist alternative to like basically run more candidates it's like an interesting strategy i don't know if that's for everyone but you know you it's exciting to see this build up at that local level because i think that is an important step like when it comes to voting in the presidential elections this year i didn't end up doing it but i have often in the past voted for the green party there is a part of me however though that looks at it and says to do oh (laughs) there's a part of me that looks at it and says you need to have more small offices held by the green party before you can have the president right there's not a single member of the house of representatives or a senate uh person who is in the green party like you got to build up to that and maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but it, it does seem like it's a long shot to shoot for the president when you don't have that, that base level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah. One thing that's, uh, yeah, I do think that that's one thing that's exciting about DSA is and the electoral front. But, you know, again, it's also not just in elections, obviously. You know, that's, again, part of the problem with the Democrats is that they only care about elections. They don't, I mean, like, people who are in office, I guess, do policy things. But in general, you don't see the Democratic Party. Like, they're not... I mean, they call themselves part of the resistance. But, you know, generally, I've never seen anybody at one of the many, many amount of protests uh, that have been going on uh, holding up like a, we are the Democrats, you know. I've not seen a single sign, not a picture of one, nothing. I could be wrong. But I don't see any actual presence of the Democratic Party. I mean, obviously, many people vote for the Democratic Party, so I'm sure there are, you know, registered Democrats or people who vote Democrat out there, but, like, the party itself basically is completely hands-off on being in the streets for this sort of thing. Oh, I see what you mean. Like, like maybe, like, the people that work at the local party office would show up with a banner to the local protest or whatever, like the right. Women's March or the March for Science or whatever. Yeah, or organize a group of people to go or whatnot. They, I don't mm-hmm. think they do that at all. Yeah, this grassroots movement, this this is happening. I mean, we've we've given examples of it. it's happening without the help of the Democratic Party or or against the Democratic Party. In the case where like Bernie ha- is supporting somebody and they they pick somebody else to run, like it's happening in spite of it. So, yeah, I think mean, it's interesting. I love to hear that the, there's this more local movement because I think that might be one of the ways to undermine the sort of data distortion or fact corruption we were talking about earlier where news is just this this echo chamber easily filterable and a lot of people aren't looking at it. If you have local awareness of a, of a of certain party, if they're in a, your community at a festival or if they're part of a, a, um, um, a, a parade or a march or whatever, like they're around, 
you start to recognize them as neighbors. And I think that that you could also have a conversation with them um, if they're down, like, at the farmer's market here in Madison. I, I see the, I think most recently I saw the Socialist Alternative down there, some other group. But I always see people talking to them. Madison is is not um, indicative of the whole rest of the state. We're pretty, we're more lefty here. But that just makes a a, a, a sort of social awareness that they're out there. You could talk to these people. They're neighbors. Yeah. You could get information handed to you in a flyer that could lead you to other uh, sources of news or ideas. And I, I don't know. I mean, there's so little of that that's been happening in my life. I don't know if it really could undermine that the the modern day news problem, but. Maybe it could. It feels like it might. It's a step in the right direction. It's a step in the right direction for a lot of other reasons too. But just thinking about that, it seems like it could only be good. Yeah, and the places like specifically with DSA because that's what I'm most familiar with. Like the places it's spreading. Like one of the biggest states we have is Texas. I mean, there are like six or seven like recognized chapters and more organizing committees and all sorts of stuff like that. We're in every state except four at the moment. Or with an actual chapter chapter. I mean, like, Alaska has one. Hawaii has one. It's all over the South. And a lot of these places that Trump was capitalizing on, there are uh, a lot of things there. So I don't I don't know if the Democratic Party can do stuff. I mean, okay, let me, I think if the Democratic Party gets seats for in 2018, it's not going to be it'll be a much smaller proportion of just regular party favorites. I think we'll hopefully see a good bit of at least left-wing, if not far-left people, running for that stuff. And I think the difference between... I think the analogy with the Tea Party is apt in a lot of ways, but also the difference here might be the Tea Party... It, it, maybe at, the, at its inception, there are a lot of people that support it, but it's not kind of a fringe sect of, of the Republican Party. This could be like the majority of people after it starts moving. A lot of, as we've seen, a lot of people are are supporting Bernie candidates and Bernie, and he's much more popular than a lot of the Democratic folks. So it could be that it's the it could end up changing the party, or or you know, you know, with like killing it, overriding <laughs> it. Yeah, American politics are just so far behind a lot of the rest of the world that yeah. it, it's almost like we just got to play catch up at this point. Like that the, we've we've mentioned Bernie a lot here, but it's like you know what in the rest of the world that's not actually that radical of a position, but it is here in the United States. I mean, you call it a Cold War, you know, holdover or whatever. I I think you are right that for a long time being a Democrat was being a very moderate leftist. You know, for be, being being someone who is basically pro-capitalism, but also thought maybe we should care a little bit about people's feelings. And uh, with the rise of Bernie, I think what we're seeing is a recognition that the what the rest of the world has done, even capital, you know, capitalist countries throughout the rest of the world have done, Certain things that are like a small challenge to capitalism, like single payer healthcare, like better public transport, like uh, you know the daycare programs for parents, and just I don't know a, a bunch of different things. Maternity leave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That you know these aren't things that will take capitalism down. 
you know, there might be ideological challenges to it because ideologically they don't fit within the logic of capitalism. But the rest of the world has shown us you can have capitalism and these things at the same time. But not only that, you can have healthy economies too and happy people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And America's been so paranoid of anything that's a little bit left, probably left over from the Cold War, like, you know, the idea that you would call yourself a socialist was basically unthinkable, and especially to be anything more than that, to be, you know, to identify with the word communist or Marxist was like, whoa, you're a monster, (laughs) right? And I think that, that ties back into what you were saying earlier, like, you go down the farmer's market and socialist alternative is there, handing out their flyers, and you see them, and they're regular people, and they're friendly, and blah, blah, blah. You know, I think one thing that I'm looking forward to in the future is just getting over this thing that people who are socialist, communist, Marxist, whatever you want to call it, that that is somehow weird or threatening or bad, that that is a regular political stance to hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and And... Uh, I don't know. I I guess that's what I put in my hope column. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's shaking out. And I think people forget that the United States used to be really radical. Like, it's it's shocking and good to see so many people flocking back to that. But, I mean, like, you look at old socialist newspapers, like, back in, like, the 1910s, 1920s, they had circulations of millions. Uh, Debs got over a million votes. I don't remember what the percentage was, but he still got, I think, a higher percentage than Bernie got for votes of the U.S. population when he ran for president. Uh, and, you know, I don't think the the sentiments of those people went away. I think it just, well, it was very actively repressed. Oh, the starting... campaign was so strong. It associated with being anti-American and it also associated it with poverty and ruin. You know, mm-hmm. like the pointing to the USSR not functioning very well and having corruption and food lines. That was huge, it was, and it was it was also propaganda because it's not because what they did was throw everything in there. All socialism, all communism leads to this, and it's also anti-American. And uh, you know, you get the McCarthy era in there, and it's like you then also have paranoia about your getting outed from by your neighbors and crap. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, it was such a powerful thing that we. We don't have, I don't have much, I was born in 1985, so obviously I don't have much recollection of the Cold War era. I don't worry that much about Big Brother or having my information online, like people who lived through the Cold War kind of feel afraid of Big Brother. Mm -hmm. But I still have that. I still had the stain of of that Cold War propaganda attack on communism and socialism growing up because it's still even probably into college I I, I was aware that of what, that it existed and that I agreed with a lot of w- w- the ideas and ideals but I would never like I feel weird if I was called a communist I'd feel like the stigma is there you know I I mean here's an interesting question how old were you when you first met an adult who identified primarily as socialist, communist, or Marxist? 20. Yeah, probably about the same. Yeah. Professor at Eau Claire. Yeah, yeah. Same thing for me. Went to the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. I mean, you know someone who's a Republican, and you can name a Republican and a Democrat as, as soon as you learn what those terms mean. 
yeah. right? You know, I, I guess I didn't know what those terms meant until I was in high school or whatever. But, like, you know them right away. And they're, they're people that you've known all your life. I mean, I think it's – that, to me, is, like, the real indicator of how strong the Cold War was is it was, like yeah. – almost impossible to find an adult who identified it and and i guess even saying tw- how about this how old were you when you found a s- when you met in real life of an adult who would identify as one of those three things the second person what do you mean like once you found two people yeah yeah so you might have been 20 when you met the first person that identified as that how old were you when you met the second person i'm not sure i can say not counting you guys yeah like like uh, like someone of an older generation yeah yeah like you're still waiting for it right yeah <laughs> or, well i, mean, I probably not met a, no, there's probably an, a, another professor there so i guess that but i wasn't there was only a single professor who who t- said his political affiliation in that way a lot of them gave up political opinions on things which yeah. I, I think is fair um, if they if they present it in a you know a clear objective well kind of objective way if they're not kind of manipulative about it I think it's f- totally fair for them to to have that discussion with their students but there's only one that was really open open about it yeah like this is what I am yeah I did have a different one at Eau Claire who was also open about it oh cool um, wait can we do we not want to say names I think we've said Stacy Thompson before on the podcast okay okay St- Stacy yeah, was I mine think that's fine I mean he. Yeah, I don't think he'd be against it. He's openly Marxist. Yeah, well, (laughs) I don't know where the lines are with name recognition here. But yeah, 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 obviously, I don't think he would be against being mentioned here. But yes, he he was mine. And I can't remember the name of the other professor I had. I think it was... He had a weird name. It was like Ingolf Vogler or something like that. Cool. He's a Dude human geography. He's a human geography uh, professor, cool. and this is before I realized that human geography was code for Marxist. <laughs> um, but I was uh, to answer the question. I was probably twenty-four. It was my first DSA meeting. Is basically the first time I met adults who were identified as socialist. Right. Like you, you have to join a socialist organization before you like see more than one adult in a room that identifies as. But- and it would be less striking if the, if those people you're talking about were the only ones who shared those ideals and had those same values. Yeah. But the truth is, a lot of people who who would identified as those Democrats we were talking about before would actually probably fit well in those in those groups. But they don't feel comfortable, or that it's not accessible to them, or they don't feel like they need to. Yeah. yeah and I think that that's that's an issue for yeah. sure. It's. Because I'm trying to remember back. I feel like I've called myself a socialist since about high school time. Mm-hmm. I definitely didn't understand exactly what that meant. Um, and probably to something we were talking about earlier, probably just to piss off right-wing people <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> this is the reason. Um, uh, but, yeah, I'm trying to, like... Because I wouldn't count myself then because I didn't know at all what that meant, really. See, in high school... I mean, I didn't know whether I was left, right, or whatever for most of high school, actually. I never never even thought about politics until I was a junior, I think. And then when I took an economics course, I, we had a very right-wing uh, teacher <laughs> who really spent a lot of the time just trying to convince us that socialism was bad and capitalism was wonderful. That was well, really his main According goal. to him, it was a system of distribution without a system of creation or something like yeah, that? Yeah, precisely. Um, which is... Or no, it was a system of creation without a system of... Di- whatever, he had it totally wrong uh, on purpose. But, but the... 
the but I I would say that that was when I became interested in left wing economics because to me every argument that he presented for what was wrong with socialism was about how the Soviet Union was bad and none of the arguments he presented were things that were inherently about the economic theory behind the Soviet Union. It was always, look at this part of the Soviet Union. Like, look, there's a dictatorship. And it's like, well, is dictatorship an inherent part of the idea behind this kind of organization of an economy? And but, it's not. And by that same token, capitalism is invalid. Yeah. Because there have been dictatorships that were capitalists. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So, like... You know that I'd say that's when I became interested. I I don't know when. And he was well, he's he's a guy who lived through the Cold War too. I mean, yeah. If you want to talk about connecting it back to that dot, it's like, yeah, he's he bought into that like so many people, absolutely. And and it also points to the institutionalization of that kind of propaganda. Like he he went through college and got an economics degree, and that is likely what a lot of those classes taught him too. Yeah. I can tell you right now that that is what... I actually... It's interesting. They basically... Nowadays, I, I guess, probably because the Cold War is around, they don't talk about socialism that much. The only classes it's come up in is one where we were specifically talking about the economics of discrimination. And it only came up briefly there. Uh, Marx came up very briefly there. And otherwise, a history of economics is the only other time we've heard of any of that. And that was simply to say, oh, Marx had some okay critiques, but he was wrong. He was wrong, he didn't understand it, and it's all different now. So, yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting how that switched. Because, yeah, I imagine if I would be getting a degree 40 years ago, it would be... And this is why the Soviet Union does it wrong with everything, you know. Like, they'd feel the need to refute it more. Like, what you're saying is your experience with uh, getting an economics degree is that there's, like, one course to say, don't worry about Marx, and then it's just, yeah, they don't, don't even, bother They don't even think about that. it. Yeah. Not a thought. Can I ask you guys a question real quick? A little bit off topic, I mean, as far as, like, the, the whole episode, but... Um since we're talking about like fascist governments or dictatorships that were communist or whatever, um, and so we can talk about like like China and, and USSR, even the Nazis or the National Socialist Party. People bring up that I mean they actually weren't socialists or anything, so people don't point to them too often. But every once in a while, if people are aware of the name, they'll they'll bring it up, and and they they point to these things where like oh socialism always leads to this or communism does. And my response to that, and I want to see if you guys what you think about my response, and if you have additional thoughts here my response to that is of course a lot of those people labeled themselves that way because socialism it appeals to the the population because its ideals are are about equality and they're about empowering the citizens um and so they're definitely strong populist ideals so if you're a a, a group of people who really wants to gain control you're going to appeal to that side of people you then, in each of these cases, they do not follow up on those ideals. So there's a disconnect there. But of course, it's a great inroad. It gets people rallying behind you, and then you can do whatever you want. And in those cases, they did what they want. So that's usually my response. It's like, it's, it's the other way around. It's that they chose that path often because it, got, it garners power and it gets a lot of support for you, especially with people who are impoverished. And then what they ended up doing with that power 
kind of has nothing to do with how they got it in the first place. Kind of like how Trump is working right now. So, I don't know. What do you guys think? Um, this will be kind of a long answer. So, buckle up. All right. We got uh, our, our buckles. <laughs> our podcast buckles. I, I mean, I think what the description that you gave, I feel, is is uh, more in line with, like, the, the German National Socialists, the Nazis there. I think that's a, a pretty good description of what happened there. I think with the Soviet Union, it's really complicated, you know, because at the, the, like, when the revolution happened, it was led by people who, in in my opinion, really probably did believe in socialism, who had read Marx and understood what he wrote for the most part. But there's a point where they stopped being the decision makers? Well, I think there's a lot of things, and some of them are just kind of like accidents of history, and some of them are like straight-up mistakes made by the leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, uh, one of the problems with the when the Soviet Union had its revolution is the there were a lot of capitalist countries that did not want them to have a revolution. And so the very first thing after the Civil War to have the revolution, you know, they had a revolutionary war, then they had to defend themselves against a bunch of invaders. You know, including the United States. The United States invaded the Soviet Union when it was in its infancy, along with a bunch of Western European nations who were trying to overthrow the revolution. So, and and at that time, the Soviet Union was not the second world power. You know, that's what it became eventually. But at that time, the Soviet Union, I mean, before the revolution, they had a czar. They were, they're, they're a feudal backwater. I mean, people didn't have electricity or cars or tractors or anything. I mean, people were peasant farmers. I mean, they had a little bit of factories and stuff. But for the most part, it was a third world country. Um, and And I would say that the way that country developed under the leadership of the USSR was a combination of things. It was a paranoia for attacks on the revolution that they had had. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a justified paranoia. You know, there was a, an assassination attempt against Lenin. He was shot uh, by someone who didn't think that, you know, didn't support his particular revolution. I think it was actually an anarchist that shot him, so it wasn't like a pro czarist person, but whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there was a lot of threats against the government that they had created. So it wasn't like the government was paranoid for no reason. They were under attack. And when governments are under attack, they enact a whole bunch of, like, you know, right-wing BS, right? Like, just like how we had the Patriot attack here after 9-11, it was like that, but on steroids. I mean, it wasn't just one little attack. It was an invasion by multiple other countries and a homegrown. Here's my question, though. You're saying the government did that. Were, 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 was the population also on board for that? Were they worried about... Because oh, they I did mean, a good job at convincing the, the public in America to support the Patriot Act in a lot of ways, but... Was that what was going on there, or was the government already sort of operating outside of, of that? I, I mean, I don't know for sure. That's not something that I've read into a lot, but I, if I had to take a stab at it, I'd say that it's probably a mix. I mean, there were people that really wanted the revolution to be a much more worker-centric kind of thing. You know, there, the, the Soviets, which were the workers' councils, those folks, a lot of them that, that participated in those Soviets wanted 
to have a more, I don't know, direct democracy kind of, you mm-hmm. know, the, what I would see as a more legitimate socialism. So, wait, so, but, so far it's, it's outside pressure create right-wing ideals and like military, militaristic sort of um, action and two, changing from a pre-existing um, uh, like superstructure gets really messy because you might have a lot of people with differing ideals and and pushing in different directions. So those two elements? Yeah, but at the same time, let's... I mean, there were legitimate things that happened in the Soviet Union that were far better than what they had before. Mm -hmm. I mean, they... You know, the, it, it was a, a command economy is is one way to say it, but it was the government organizing the economy so that you could jump forward in time, generations. I mean, that's why the Soviet Union became such a threat to the United States is they became so much more efficient than we ever thought they could have. Right. You know, if 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 Soviet-style socialism, which we can have a whole debate over whether or not it's socialism, I think that's a good debate to have, but for now, let's just call it Soviet-style socialism. It was so effective that that's what scared the United States and other Western nations. If it was as inefficient as the propaganda said, they would have just collapsed under their own weight. They were already a third-world nation. They would have just gone downhill from there. The problem was they industrialized more quickly than any other nation up to that point and still uh, have one of the fastest industrialization rates of all of history. So the poverty wasn't real or it's the so Did they it? were poor compared to America mm-hmm. but they were closing the gap. Yeah. And especially too with like the the people starving and the breadlines and stuff that I mean they were doing that when they were under the czar. That's part of the reason why they had the revolution is mm. because it was already like that and it took them a huge amount of time because their agriculture was like, uh, it was so futile. <laughs> like the, you, everybody got little strips of land, like there's a huge field and people would get like one narrow strip, like about the width of a person. And your strips wouldn't all be together. They'd be divided up amongst all these other people. And you'd basically hand plant and hand pick. And maybe you had a wood plow to do all this stuff. And that's the agriculture for the whole country. And not a lot of that country can be farmed. I think So, like, yeah. trying to catch that up. Yeah. I mean, that was part of the reason for that. Those but, things matter. But, but I think also if I said that to somebody, they would point out, well, fine, things got better. But ultimately, they got really bad. Yeah. Like the the government got very corrupt, you know, in like l- during the Cold War mm-hmm. and and yeah. then leading up till now. So, so but but yeah. I guess what I'm saying is the standard of living was actually I in my opinion it was a success story. They improved they, their standard of living never reached America's standard of living, but their rate of increasing it beat America's rate of increasing the standard of living. Mm-hmm. Like they did things the, they increase the standard of living faster than any other yeah. economic system. And it's valuable to look at so, these things, but, but talk about why it went sour. Well, but, but well, I guess I'm saying that that okay, whole okay. paranoia, the whole, you know, the being invaded yeah. and, you know, the already an authoritarian structure that they're used to with the czar and blah, blah, blah. That's, that's a thing that did not really improve that much and, and right. arguably got worse, especially with the purges and Stalin and all of that. So but I, I think the political freedom aspect of it, that's something that really needs to be studied with the Soviet Union. But, to, I mean, I think what 
what you get a lot in America, or at least what I felt like I got growing up was the polit- the political freedoms are really bad, which is totally true. But I also got in that same story that that therefore the economy was terrible, that that everything about the economy, the whole economic system was bad. Actually, there were a lot of wins in that economic Cause, system. Because partially they're cherry-picking and partially they're framing things in a poor way. Because you can cherry-pick bad periods where they had poverty, but you could also frame it in the sense like compare it to America and then look at what they had instead of comparing it to what they had previously and looking to the progress of the country as a whole. Yeah. So it's, it's these little, little rhetorical tactics, little like ways to frame yeah. it. Yeah, and, so I mean I think – I guess what my takeaway is is I, I don't think – to ju- I think to say simply the Soviet Union was not socialist. I mean that that it's an interesting question that I think we can debate. But I I think, th- in my opinion, the more important thing to say is there are things about the Soviet Union that actually were quite good and need to be learned from, and there were things about the Soviet Union that were terrible and should never be repeated, and they need to be learned from. Yeah, and I'll say. Um, to jump on with that. Like uh, the Tsar, who everybody's oh no, uh, the Tsar was killed by the revolution. Yeah, Tsar Nicholas's nickname was Nicholas the Bloody <laughs> because of the people. Like people came to give him like a petition because they were worried about something. And he just had the the open fire and killed them all. Sure. Like he wasn't a good person. It's something that with Cuba also people like forget is that Batista was a monster. Yeah, the Cuban government isn't great, but, you know, like, what was there before in Cuba was worse. Um, but I think a lot of the, the paranoia and problems that uh, Red was talking about, though, I think most of those sort of, from what I've studied, ossify under Stalin. Because before Stalin managed to wrangle power uh, from everybody, the USSR was actually governed by a council. It was the People's Council of Commissars. And so, like, Lenin was sort of the de facto leader, but he was just one of, I think, about a dozen people mm-hmm. who actually ran the country. Like, they w- it was the council that ran it. Um, and I think they were elected by the party. I don't know exactly how the elections went. So, I mean, there was actually, like, a spreading of power and some democracy to start with. But then under Stalin, all but one of those people either died of natural causes or was murdered by him. Um, so under Stalin, I think, is where you see a lot of, a lot of the things that could have, you know, were problematic and bad. But under, like, actual democratic means and, like, uh, adherence to actual socialist values... I think that it could have gotten better, whereas Stalin took it in the direction where it ended up. So I think, okay. even for that stuff, like it could have ended up in a much better place. So the simplicity of my my answer is not that the in in these cases these parties were aware that this would that socialist ideals would garner them support, and then they could just pull pull the switcheroo on them. Yeah. It's it's more complicated, and and I assume that was the well, case, but. But it's even complicated the fact that decades can go by right. before things and, change. And something else I think is a little weird when we're talking about like the fall of communism. One of the thing or the USSR, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting about that is it's not actually their communism that was their downfall. It was their embracing of capitalist things. 
ended ultimately ended up doing like perestroika and all these other they kept doing little capitalist reforms because i mean in some ways the cold war propaganda worked against them as well mm-hmm. the way the u.s would do it so they kept doing all these capitalist reforms until it just didn't mesh with the system they had and they ended up collapsing um some of the, so, some well, of the capitalist cap- propaganda worked too because it, i mean because people the quality of life wasn't as good as America. Like you yeah. said, it never quite reached it. Yeah. So it's really easy to be like, oh, cool, Coca-Cola and cars is awesome. Especially like during the Cold War. Right. Like, it, yeah, that was, that, was, that was a big deal. The, you know, I think one thing that, to come back to your original statement, I think what's interesting is it becomes, in my opinion, your statement becomes more true as time goes on in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. It's like, at the beginning, I feel like there was a lot of honesty and there was a lot of, honest good intentions so you know lenin really did want to have uh you know a kind of socialism that gave power to the workers and blah 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 but as time went on eventually you know and lenin honestly well i should say this early on lenin also said look we don't have socialism we had a revolution that doesn't make us socialists we're just trying like we're just trying our best to transition Mm -hmm. you know we're I forgot what he called it. Was state it? capitalism. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's what he called it. State capitalism. He said, "Okay, we don't really have socialism yet. We have kind of this middle stage that we're going to call state capitalism, where it's still capitalist, but the state's kind of running it, so it's like more coordinated." Well, you know, things were not that different when Stalin said, "Guess what, guys? We're officially socialist now. We made it. We're there." <laughs> <laughs> and like. It wasn't that different, but he was, I, I mean, I think part of it was he just wanted to claim it because of all the good qualities sure. associated with it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, and I mean, he did, there were some good things about it, you know, certain coordination of the economy that you can get at that large scale that, that can smooth some things out and make planning for things better. You know, like if you want to, like, you know, when, when the after the revolution happened one of the things that they did was they were like okay we need to improve agriculture so let's start building tractors you know in a capitalist economy you're not going to build tractors unless the farmers can afford tractors Mm. but under socialism it was like we just need more food so they can't afford tractors whatever let's make tractors and give them tractors like the government will find a way to make this happen so you know there are there are benefits that you can get even under state capitalism compared to, you know, an unregulated capitalist. Mm-hmm. Um, to jump to the Nazi thing, I, I agree with uh, what Red said about that, but I also find it interesting that I find the people who uh, bring up the Nazi party as an example of socialism, which is obviously ridiculous on all faces, since the socialists and communists were the first ones they murdered, um, but the people who bring that up tend to be the people who are actually okay with Nazis. <laughs> you ever notice that? Like, it's the furthest, furthest authoritarian, or furthest right people who are like, oh, but it was like the Nazis. Mm. Mm. It's like, but you kind of seem like you like the Nazis. So <laughs> what are you exactly are you saying about it? <laughs> it's like a Ku Klux Klan member being like, oh, no, you know, those socialists, they're all a bunch of Nazis. <laughs> Well, it took us down a little bit of a, a tangential rabbit hole there, talking about that. Because I know we were, we were talking about like activism and stuff post-election. So if we want to get back on that track, we can. I don't know if you guys had any other topics you wanted to say, though. Yeah. Okay. Uh, immigration. Yeah. I think we should talk about um, Trump's two failed 
uh, attempts to <laughs> keep brown people out of our country. I mean, because the, the first one... Like, Specifically Muslim people. Yeah, Muslim yeah. people. Because um, his first ban was just ridiculous, not well thought out, and completely chaotic, because he was like, effective now. And that caused huge problems, obviously. People are well... I hope people are well aware of the massive protests and the fact that people who were just on a plane and were legally allowed to be in the United States were detained for days and a lot of times denied legal representation as well. And even after the courts said that they could or that they couldn't hold them anymore, were still being held illegally. <laughs> like these people were kidnapped by the uh, authority, uh, immigration authority. Yeah. Um, this is where I, it actually it almost works segueing for what we were just talking about Nazis is this is where I do think that our government is I think you could say fascist as far as like ICE uh, the what is it immigration customs enforcement is that what it stands for I believe I'm not sure but, but it's the, the immigration people uh, I, I think they we can honestly kind of call I think I don't know because people like to bat the word around I'm not trying to bat it around but I think you could call them fascists because i mean these people are just evil and zealous like they've been in in addition to the the two failed attempts to d uh, ban people they've ramped up deportations and that's saying something because obama had deported more people than uh all presidential uh presidents combined before him which, again, speaking of people being complacent during Obama's uh, reign. Mm -hmm. But they've ramped up even since then. And they've heard quotes of ICE people saying they feel happy to go to work now. They feel like their hands have been untied. And they can do what they do with people, I mean, they deny them legal representation. They say that they don't have a right to habeas corpus. They put them a lot of times in for-profit prisons, which there's a class action lawsuit about how they've been using them as slave labor, literal slave labor. Mm -hmm. Forced labor, no pay, uh, and you're ripping families apart, sending people back to, a lot of times, their deaths or poverty, especially, uh, like, in cases of people who, like, were born here, <laughs> or, or, sorry, came here when they were young, like, and have never lived in another country, or haven't lived in a country for 30 years, like, they don't know anybody, they don't have any resources there, or whatnot, mm -hmm. I think, I think, yeah, I think it's fascist. I really do. It's yeah. Well, especially when uh, so we have checks and balances as, as part of the the integral like characteristic of our democracy is that no one branch is supposed to go um, unchecked by the others. And then if you have them acting contradictory to like a judge's order, that's a huge indication of like kind of fascism to me. Like don't yeah because you're not you're you're not uh, uh, upholding that you are acting specifically from a direct conduit of power in this case the president saying do do this particular thing, um, but one of the great things about those orders is that they were so ramshackle and thrown together, and and kind of naive it, like it, in the sense even that they said enact now i mean it, it it opened them to so much vulnerability legally and and obviously made they were unconstitutional and they were easily fought in the courts 
Um, I say easily. There were people doing really good work. Like as soon as the immigration ban came out, the ACLU uh, was very, very active. There were protesters at airports. There were uh, lawyers giving their services to help people the day of. You know, like that. That is a beautiful thing to see when we're talking about silver linings. But it was also so weak. And it, I don't know, it kind of, we've mentioned this before too. Just the disorganization of the administration. Just the the naivete of how government works and how policy works. And unfortunately. While I think that that is a characteristic of the organization and probably will be a part of it as it goes, you kind of have four years to learn from those mistakes. And I think they'll continue to try and things might not be so overt. I think an executive order is good because you can do it fast. The president just does it. Um, it yeah, it makes it vulnerable because it's just an executive order and it can be, if it goes against constitutional law and stuff, it can be fought. But it, the president does it, and if you have a cult of personality, you just kind of have to do it and show that you're trying. And the people that like that like it. And you kind of did it in a way. Mm. And then you can go back and you have four years to kind of do other backwards shit slowly, and you can still do it. I, I mean, I, I have no doubt there have been another more attempts at the same time of thing, rewarding it and reworking it. But there will be other, other smaller, less publicized acts too. I think they'll learn from it, which is the, why we need to be so conscious and why we need this left motivated to resist. I think one, one thing that's interesting is to tie this back into the two strains I was talking about earlier, where you've got the pro-capitalist strain and then you've got the nativist, you know, <coughs> racist, you could call it populist. It's, I feel weird calling using that word in this particular context. But the executive orders to ban people from majority Muslim countries is, to me, falls in the uh, nativist bucket. Mm -hmm. And he's been blocked on that twice now, which maybe is why, he, why we see him moving forward with that kind of right-wing capitalist style, because he's not being blocked on that. Or maybe sure. he hasn't. I guess he hasn't yet. Maybe he will be. But it's kind of interesting to see... That conflict. If, if, yeah. yeah, and if he's going to keep on trying to do both of them or if he's going to give up on that front entirely. Because the party tries to do both, obviously. And as a whole party, you can do a lot more. But as in specific actions that you take and laws that you enact, it's, uh, it's more difficult to appeal to everybody. And the Republicans have, you know, that's been one of their kind of winning but also kind of self-destructive strategies in the last couple decades is throwing out that blanket to so many different kind of fringe groups and trying to pull them all in. Um, you talk about the Tea Partiers, but you, a lot of, of them have very particular issues that they care heavily about, like abortion and gun rights. And they kind of don't care as much about the other thing, but you want to keep them all in and you want to keep... So they have a, a lot of competing ideology now. I think the Democrats probably have some of that too, more than they thought prior to Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so there's the schism there. But yeah, the Republicans have been trying to do that for so long and it creates issues. Um, and I, yeah, now it's, it's boiling to a head though, where you have them disagreeing, where you have the, the Obamacare repeal or, or replace the act, the first one. And yeah, you couldn't, there's no way it, they, that that would have worked because of what you said, the, the, the far right Republicans and the moderate ones couldn't agree because they kind of don't agree on a lot, like, yeah. but but they want they agree on certain things, and that's close enough. And and the Republican Party has done a good job of catering to that, appealing to those particular things and bringing bringing them in and, and gaining numbers. So it's interesting to see that symbolized in a, in one administration now. Because I think in the past it wasn't as big with Bush, 
you know, I, I, it, I think, you know, it was probably there, but not as big. Yeah, under Bush, it's felt like there are Republicans who mostly care about this and Republicans who mostly care about this, but you didn't ever got, get the feeling, at least I never did, that they were mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And that is the feeling that I'm getting now with, with some of these things. Maybe it's dissatisfaction, the fact that they really didn't do a lot of the things they promised. I mean, and, and that they didn't support the middle class and the lower class, um, the working man, like they sometimes rhetorically promised to do. And maybe it's that, like, people strike out and they're hoping to to have their voices heard, but then they kind of get back assimilated into the Borg, you know, the Tea Party getting pulled back in. And obviously, the, if there's a there's a party for the Tea Party years to go into, it'd be the Republican Party here. But yeah, it seems like they that probably wasn't their their goal when that first started. It, I don't know though. I mean, it's, the whole Tea Party thing seemed sort of orchestrated um, by or curated by a lot of people in the established right, like by Fox News and stuff. So maybe maybe there's a little bit more strings being pulled there. But a lot of those people, a lot of the people that probably bought into it, weren't hoping that they'd just be another sect of republicanism i don't know yeah. it seems like it would come from a place of not being happy with how things were but i don't know because the tea partiers where that when was that what year that was sometime in obama i want to say <laughs> but early 2010? 2010 yeah, yeah i think it's 2010 somewhere around in, there in his first in his first term right yeah yeah yeah. I think it, you know what, I bet if we went and looked, it probably coincides with not long before midterm elections. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Conveniently, mm-hmm. conveniently, right before the midterm elections. And, and Obama could be a factor of that, but he, throughout that, the Republic, like if you're a Republican, you still controlled Congress, or you felt that way. Like, is a Republican control Congress, so the fact that you'd want to ha- well, create your own new Not thing. up until 2010. It was Democratic controlled for Obama's first two years. Oh, really? My God. Yep, and he didn't do anything. Um, but, I mean, yeah, that's probably, probably why. I mean, it's so weird to even think of that. It's been so long. Yeah, I will say, I think one reason we're seeing the schism in the Republicans now and not during Bush is September 11th. Because everybody really got lockstep together yeah, that's a good point. with that. And that was... How many? That was a... 2001. Two, a year into, yeah, a year, almost two into his... Or, yeah, a year or two, almost two years into his term. And I think, I, okay, I almost went conspiracy. I'm like, conveniently, also right before a midterm elections, <laughs> I, I'm not a 9-11 truther. I think that's uh, uh, an unfortunate coincidence. Um, but. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, a, that's a very good point, because that, that probably brought more people in line. Yeah. Um, to want to be, you know, toe the party line. Well, and they, I mean, I don't know if, I was reminded of this the other day and I'd forgotten that George W. Bush and all of them said, if you oppose us, you are a terrorist. If you are not 100% behind everything we do, you're a terrorist. Essentially, yeah, you support. You support them. You, yeah. you make us weaker. You make us vulnerable, which is which is. I think he literally yeah. said you're a terrorist. No. <laughs> no way, dude. Okay, I'll try and... He said, if you're not with us, you're against us. Yeah, but ag- against us was the terrorists is how they were framing it. Yeah, yeah. 
I'll look, in, mean, I'll sure. look and see if I can find okay. a clip and include it if I'm right. <laughs> even if he said if that, not, though, he didn't not, say you're a terrorist. Like, even if what his implication was that, all I'm saying is that if he said those words, that would be really surprising to me. Because even I back then... someone in the administration. I'll, I'll try and look and see. I mean, but. someone in the administration, sure. I, I, someone's in the administration isn't the president, though. Like, right. I mean, him saying that would be huge, which is part of the nostalgic, the... F- freaking weird nostalgia i have for bush is that yeah you yeah he would be afraid of saying stuff like that it, it, obviously that you wouldn't call your opponent a terrorist and like i because that's one of the things that i think lost uh mccain and sarah palin the election against obama the first time around is they implied as hard as they could that obama was a terrorist but then at a rally someone came out and said uh, you know, Barack Obama is a terrorist, and John McCain had to stand back and say, "I'm sorry, man, but he is not. He's he's a decent human being. I just disagree with him on whatever." Right. And I remember that a nuanced up. view on someone. Yeah, because because no. Trump did like would was basically the opposite of that. Is yeah. you know, people stood up at Trump rallies and said, "We got to get this radical, uh, you know, Muslim terrorist out of office," and he said, "We're going to look into that." You know, he didn't. Yeah. He didn't say, uh, "I'm sorry, but he's a he's a human being and he's not a terrorist." Because because Trump is just a, a, a trust fund con man, and John McCain is is a veteran who had some integrity. Like, I, yeah. I, exactly. And and the, so the particular quote I'm thinking about George W. Bush is while a lot of his actual policies and things he did are not in line with this at all. At least one of the things he said was, "We are not going to war with the Muslim world." Yeah. We are not. This is not a war on the, the this religion or all of these people. This is a war on radicals, mm-hmm. um, and that is not anything. That that sort of position, he probably held that because he felt like he had to say that. And and maybe there's political and and cynical reasons he felt that way. But maybe he honestly morally felt that way. That's not part of the discourse anymore. No. And that, uh, yeah, yeah. Although I will say, I think it's ridiculous when people like fucking Ellen. DeGeneres, did you see this? She had George W. Bush on her show and talking about how much she loved him. And it's like, fuck you. (laughs) Don't go that hard, (laughs) man. I don't like that I feel that sort of nostalgia. Because it is a whitewashed version. More almost honest politics. Although nothing about the Bush administration was honest. But... or for a more compared to now, it's more. <laughs> what, you know what, what I mean. For a classier, yeah. For some, yeah, yeah, for sure. One of my favorite humorous headlines I saw after the election. I don't know if it was the Onion or whoever put this out, but it was an article about how George Bush was reflecting on the election of Trump, and he said, "You know." I knew eventually I wouldn't be the dumbest president we ever elected, but I didn't know it would be so soon. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? Trump is a genius, even though he apparently can't or doesn't read? I mean, yeah. The, I mean, it's so obvious that the guy's just a freaking idiot. He didn't realize healthcare was complicated. He thought being president would be easier. I think what it honestly is, is he's used to running his dumb little business where he just says dumb shit and everybody has to go, yes, sir, so they still get their paycheck. And now we're like, he's like, you're going to pass this health care law. The Republican people, all these senators and whatnot, and the House people who have their own power base that isn't centered completely on him can go, no, no, we're going to do our own thing. You're not the boss of us. And it's been troubling to him. That, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't realize like, he can't be a dictator as easily as he hoped. Just even with 
interviews that are done by right-wing interviewers, you know, people from Fox News and stuff, when they interview Trump, it's so clear that he doesn't know what he's talking about, and they pick up on it. Like, the, the, they're... There have been kind of like hostile interviews, I guess I'll say, from like Fox News reporters with Trump, kind of because they just want him to know his shit. <laughs> like, just like uh, actually, Glenn Beck, who I never thought I'd agree with anything on, hated decided he hated Trump because the guy because Trump couldn't answer a simple question about his stance on abortion. Like it was, it was, you know. It was clear to me, but it was really interesting to find out that it was also clear to Glenn Beck that when he watched this interview with Trump, he realized Trump was just making things up, right? Like that, like with no prior thought, and and apparently that upset him so much that he was not not a Trump guy, which is so weird to be agree with even something as simple right. as that. I, mean, I think Glenn Beck can also see. I mean, maybe this hints at integrity in Glenn Beck, but also an insight into the fact that there's going to be that opposition to Trump, even within the conservative yeah. wing of the government and the and the country, because he he was an established. I mean, Obama years, he was a real established character, uh, like O'Reilly, and may and, and you know, and so. like, but also at the same time, he was kind of a nut job, right? Oh yeah, like that was like, his appeal, like that yeah. was his character for sure, and I think he's a little bit different now because he's. That was part of his persona, which I think is super messed up when you have a persona and you're characterizing it as as being real or, or news, like Infowars guy. He, oh, he, Alex Jones. Yeah, it, Alex <laughs> Jones. It, his recent his divorce case or whatever, where his lawyers like because they were trying to use the things he says, and they're like, "Oh, that's a persona. That's a character." Yeah. No one who watches that show and believes it would ever have, uh, would want that to be true. And in fact, they'd probably see that and go, "Nope, he's just saying that to win the court case." Yeah. This oh, is real. yeah. He didn't get custody. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. But no, but that's what I'm so I'm like, yeah, I, I can kinda it's weird that he did that, but it's also and maybe there's a part of him who's like, ah, this will probably pay off long term. But also it's like it is weird when Glenn Beck seems to have clarity about something. You're like, what? Yeah, when you're like when you're when you're sitting there and you're like, Am I taking crazy pills? Does no one realize <laughs> that he doesn't know what he's talking about? And then Glenn Beck comes out and says the exact th- thing you were thinking, you're like Oh my God! He's like the only pundit that sees things clearly. Where, <laughs> what world am I living in? I'm a Republican now. Wait, am I? Oh crap! Yeah, it's weird. It's so weird. Um, should we discuss whether or not Trump will get impeached? Sure. Because I, don't I think, think he will. Well, here's the thing. Or I think he, I think he might because. He, you need a vote. Congress needs to vote right. to impeach you, right? So he right. would need to have enough Republicans want to impeach right. him as and, well. Right, yeah, depending on how things go, we talked about him trying to right. walk the line between the two, and sure. he isn't doing well with that. There's also already conflict, and if it and if the Russia stuff it turns out to be really bad, nationalism. I mean, interacting with a foreign, like a, you know, a hostile or non-allied superpower, I could see Republicans getting behind throwing him under the bus for that. Yeah, and I mean, they like Pence. Pence is an established guy who's also a monster. <sighs> but I think the thing where he, Trump is, again, just how incredibly dumb he is. And the thing where they can hang him whenever they want uh, with an impeachment is his finances. Since he refused to put his money in a blind trust, he has his son-in-law and daughter both have positions in the White House and offices there who both are financially tied to that. And his sons, who he obviously has complete control over, because otherwise why the hell would they dress like that? Um, and do their hair like him. Nice. Like, run his company. <laughs> I'm sorry, his... 
Oh no! I just thought it was. I just thought it was funny. It's it's bad to go to personal attacks, but they're they're not ugly boys. They're they're not good looking boys. <laughs> Ivanka's the only one who uh, seemed to escape the brunt of the ugly stick. What oh. was wrong with Tiffany? Who? Yeah. <laughs> Is there enough for one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought you were making a joke because, like John Oliver and, and folks, always make that joke that he do, that he likes Ivanka so much more. He has another daughter. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's exactly the joke that's made. Is nobody ca- that he doesn't care about her. And nobody oh, knows about her. Poor girl. Yeah. I mean, poor girl on so many levels. But so, like every time, like he's been to Mar-a-Lago, what every weekend? Most of them. A lot of them. Yeah. Um. You know, every time he does it, he has foreign, like the yep. Chinese president was just there. That's a foreign government directly paying him to talk to him. You know, all of the companies he set up in Saudi Arabia. Yep. That's one of the few places he's <laughs> going to actually speak. Here's the thing, though. Where's all, the of, all of these things, even though conceivably the Republicans could impeach him for those things, these are not the things that... Republicans care about. They're pretty well, much on board with all this life. But it's the Constitution that, rich, that says right. it. Rich it's people oh, yeah. If they decide yeah. they want to ditch Trump. Oh, yes. This they have, is they they the tools. It's 100% impeached. I mean, it's, yeah. he's, personally, he's personally gaining. Like, even the cruise missile strike. Oh, God, we haven't even talked about that. About him, his warmongering. We still haven't gotten to that yet. But even the cruise missile strike on Turkey. He owns stock in that company, and they. Sh- and he was talking about how great those missiles were. Their stock price shot up. He personally made millions of dollars yeah. by murdering people. This is what I'm talking about as far as accountability goes. Because with the emoluments clause, when, when he first got elected, that came up really quickly. Because it was obviously going to be a point of interest for people, seeing what he would do. Because he had, he had for all the reasons we have already talked about. And he has done nothing. To, to try to offset that. Like, he, he has symbolically basically put the control of his company in the hands of other people who will work with him, who are his family members, who are also involved in politics. Like, there's nothing. It, it was a gesture. And so, where does that rubber hit the road? Because the way it was described to me around the election time by, I think it was George W. Bush's, like, legal advisor one of, one, on his team, he was like, oh, yeah, he'll be impeached for this. This, th- this is going to happen. This, this can't stand. He's done. Hey, it's it's May. Dude, yeah. I mean, nobody's talking about impeaching him. I get what you're saying is that they could go back and use it as an excuse, but I feel like it's going to ring very hollow well, if no one's talking about it now as each one of these things happens. Don't the Republicans love the Constitution, too? Isn't that like a thing? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's because they go back to defending the, 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 the Second Amendment so often, yeah. but they're real constitutionalists a lot, and it's like, well, th- that's this, right? Yeah, it's just I don't know, man. It yeah. bugs. Yeah, the heck they don't. Out of me. They don't actually care about the Constitution. No. It just sounds good. No, well, it's just see, marketing. Nobody's talking. I, a few people were initially talking about it when he uh, got as president. Like I think one city council passed a resolution saying that they should that Trump should be impeached. Awesome. I know that's not really doing. <laughs> that's much. super funny, but I love it. Um, but like he's. Approval rating, I don't think, has gone up at all. He started as the lowest approved president. Nobody likes any of the stuff he's trying to push through. He's not making friends in the party on really either side. He's putting just all of his weird little yes men who don't even like each other in stuff. Like, it's kind of a train wreck. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Republican Party went, you know what? 
this guy's a clown. We're done with him. Right. We've right. let this, you know, on the old back. Oh, we uh, we hate to do to one of our own. But this, especially, I think you're right with the Russia stuff. Like, if they can find that there was actually some earnest coordination between Putin and Trump, like, if there ever was even just a little, like, thing where an in-between was like, oh, yeah, no, don't worry, Trump, Putin's got your back in this election, we'll help you out. Like, I think that would probably be enough to do that. I would honestly, I'll be honestly surprised if he makes it four years without getting impeached, because honestly, I think the Republicans would rather have Pence in charge. Sure. Like, none I, of the I Republican establishment that. even wanted Trump as a nominee. Yeah. Like, once it was a serious nominee, they were all like, oh, oops. <laughs> yep. so, yeah, but I mean, but he won. Yeah. And I, I think that's just going to, it's like, you might not like him, but guess what? He won, and I, I think that's going to be enough to keep him from being impeached. Here's what's like, tr- this yeah. is the guy who gets our votes. Here's what's he, troubling to me. Oh, it might be. He, he won states that they've never won before. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think... I, I think they're, that's going to buy him enough credibility to make it through at least one term without getting impeached. When you talk about approval ratings, too, uh, I, w- we brought up before, and I think it's accurate, that the core constituency that voted for Trump aren't really represented in those approval ratings, I bet. I bet a lot of them aren't people who are going out there and, and going to like getting polled about their approval of him. Not and great. I think a lot of people who dislike him a lot are, are getting polled, and I think they're yeah. probably trying to poll people who identify as Republicans, but I don't think those are probably the Republicans that were out there really, really into Trump. Because if they were, what changed? Like, he got elected and then he, he started two months later. Why is his approval rating already tanked? So, I th- like... The, yeah, the accuracy of that as a measure is is worrisome to me. It might be super accurate, and I'm not surprised it's so low. But also, yeah, I don't know if it actually means anything. I don't know if there's accountability. I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. It's so weird. Maybe I never knew anything to begin with, and that's what's good about thinking about this more that, that Trump's there. But I don't know. And then there are people like I. I'm fifty fifty. I think I think you might be right that he won't make it, and I could also see him making it. I have no idea, but I know there are people I know in my life for instance, who, have voted, who voted for Trump hoping that he wouldn't make it, but hoping that him being impeached would take with him all the skin tags that make the Republican Party so repulsive, or just established, um, established politicians. He would, he would shake things up, and he would expose the corruption. And it's like, no, man, there's no way that's going to happen. Like, even he draining the swamp. normalized it, is what he's like, doing. Yeah. It like, so they thought of it like a sep- uh, Septiku or Harikiri, whichever way you want to pronounce it, where he goes, he presents himself, he ritually sacrifices himself to purify the party or to purify like, yeah. the country. Or he'd be a bomb that would just blow things up, and a ru- like the ruined a ruined party would be better than the corruption that already exists. You know that one could happen still. I mean, possibly, but also if if you cut his head off, what you all you have under it that grows is is Pence. Yeah, like yeah. It, which is scarier as president to me and, than Trump. And the honestly. same established BS that we've had for 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 a long time. So yeah, I don't I don't know I don't know. Yeah, because it's like is Pence gonna make a better health care bill or a better like Muslim ban or whatever? No, he's just he might have the political know how to get it done though. Right. Because Pence is basically he's a Christian supremacist, like so he I'm sure fully supports all of the awful worst things that Trump has done. Um, it, I think the biggest thing will be whether the Republican Party continues to infight and fracture. Because if they don't, 
that means they get behind Trump or they kind of start controlling him. Because I, I think at, at first there were a lot of different parties vying for Trump, controlling Trump, like Bannon and the other, like the, how you've characterized it. But I think one's probably going to win over because Trump's not a complicated guy. He's going to go with the easier path and what works for him. And eventually it might just mean that people just – everybody gets a little string and that could be a way he doesn't get impeached because Pence is essentially in power then or all the people that we worry about are essentially in power. And But if that doesn't happen, if people keep butting heads, I could see them wanting him to go because he's kind of the catalyst that does create this chaos. In a sense, he is kind of one of the things that the person I'm talking about who voted for him, he is kind of doing that. He is kind of shaking things up in a – counterproductive way but at least it changes things if you really don't like anything about how things are currently going you find value in things changing how they change them should matter to you yeah, yeah it's kind of like um george w bush was a clown but he was a clown that the leash fit well on and then he'd heal yeah and trump is a clown but one who won't put a leash on and doesn't heal sort of at least at the moment yeah, and all, all the things that made Bush bad, like uh, uh, coming from a political dynasty, being a rich kid, all these these things still made him stately in an older sense, like what we're used to with politicians, and Trump is not any of that. And it's part of the reason he got elected, but it's also part of the reason why he's just so bad at all this. And, and bad not in a way... Like, I also think that the things Bush did were bad, they, but they were dressed up in a nice way. So I guess you could be happy that at least Trump is honest about how dishonest he is. Like, he doesn't make an attempt to hide it. I mean, it, it, at least, okay, he constantly says he doesn't lie. He constantly lies. Yeah. But he doesn't go out of his way to be careful with what he says. Yeah. No one is out there thinking that he is super, has a, a large amount of integrity. His best supporters think he likes to keep you on your toes and he li- he has nuanced positions on things. Like, yeah. With, see, with, with George W. Bush, I remember, like, listening to him talk, you'd be like, oh, my God, like, the way he presented that was so wrong, and it would take me a while, but, like, I could eventually explain to you why he's really not doing what he's saying here. But, like, with Trump, it's just, like, he says something, and you're like, that's just factually not true. Like, it doesn't take any time to explain yeah. and it how he's be lying to you. It should be good, because it's like, oh, that's so untrue, and there's so little effort into trying to make it seem true. Great, it's easy, but but it's not working because where's the accountability? Where's the rubber hit the road? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's more depressing. It's more depressing. Uh-huh. I think in a way that's where Spicer comes in because for as ridiculous as Trump is, Spicer's doing the thing. He's, oh, yeah. I don't know what he's... I, what he drinks in the morning is probably a combination <laughs> of battery acid and the drug acid. And I like it's extra nonsensical. It's like you take Trump and you filter it through Trump, and that's what comes out of Spencer. I feel bad for or Spicer. Like, I I go I go back and forth between feeling pity for him and and just hating, hating him. Like he's such a despicable buffoon. Um, I guess he's a buffoon either way. Sometimes he's a despicable buffoon. Sometimes he's just a sad clown. Um, because it must be so so hard to be the face that has to back up or correct or support the things Trump says and does. Yeah, like, how many times do you think that he's like, I wish just once I could be like, you know what? Uh, that was wrong. What the president said was wrong, and it was a dumb thing to say. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. Like, because he can't do that, Like, right? Like, he has to defend everything the president says. I was blown away. He did say one time... Basically, they said something, and it, I don't even remember what it was now. How can you keep track of them all? Like, it was some tweet or something. And he said, Well, that is the president's opinion. 
Um, and then he moved on. They were asking like if there was truth in that. And he just said, it's the president's opinion. It, it kind of implying that it wasn't the administration's opinion. It wasn't anyone else's opinion. And kind of opening the door to be like, yeah, our president just says a bunch of stupid crap. Let's yeah, move on. Yeah, because using the word opinion is basically another way of saying that's not a fact. Right. Because in the past... In the past, whether it was Obama or Bush, or keep, keep on going back, if someone said that's the president's opinion, people would go, oh, okay, what's that based on? Because he's the president, he will be someone who's basing his opinion on a bunch of facts, or at least some sort of logical framework. Yeah. But with, with the Spicer's comment, it's saying, oh, let's recognize, hey, across the aisle, let's recognize we have a president who does not do that anymore. So why talk about it? <laughs> if you're coming to me for that, I'm just going to say that's his thing. And I think he maybe he maybe he got backlash for that cuz he doesn't do it all the time. He still does try to to defend things. Um and it's funny to see how much him and the pundits on talk shows and the news networks how much they try to like backtrack and fill in gaps in the things Trump says to make them more coherent and stuff. But yeah, like I yeah, it, it's just a completely Trump is completely different. You know, on on the backtracking and filling in the gaps to make what Trump says make sense, it's kind of interesting because he's he'll contradict himself within the same sentence sometimes. <laughs> so he's almost oh, like God. this just word vomit. Yes, and then like finding meaning in it is sort of like reading the tea leaves. Right. Or reading the vomit leaves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> it's like you just feel bad about yourself and you're messy afterwards if you try to do it. <laughs> yeah. It's better to just leave it alone. Again, to hearken back to George W. Bush, he had Ari Fleischer, who is just a terrible human being. But he like he defended Bush's stuff because he was a true believer. But like, you know, he would take Bush's largely incoherent nonsense and he would like put a fine evil polish on it um which is again disgusting he's a terrible human being right but part of the reason he could do that was there was some coherence with the things bush said they at least followed a logical kind of consistent line and there was a lot of hypocrisy to them i'm sure and a lot a lot of bullshit but yeah you can work with that spicer man I mean, that's the part where I pity him, where I'm like, yeah. man, that would be hard for even the brightest people out there, but also you seem so poorly suited to this job. <laughs> D- during the campaign, it was always Kellyanne Conway who had to oh. defend the things Trump said. And Fake it's news. Like, the, even though the, the, I feel less pity for her than I do for Spicer, it's, it's interesting that all these people that have to defend what Trump is saying, it doesn't seem like any one of them really believe in what he's like yeah there's a cynicism to it that didn't used to exist with with all of the supporters and yeah yeah like you were saying with 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 bush and and his speakers yeah and it's like it shouldn't be that hard to find someone who agrees with you and then can explain your point of view Mm -hmm. or or whatever without doing the kellyanne thing and, and bringing up alternative facts now that that's part of our lexicon, it's a beautiful world. Yeah, you know what? I remember there was this thing where during the Bill Clinton trials, he had like this little speech that he gave once. I don't know if it was in court or where it was, but he was basically like trying to just introduce like philosophical confusion into the discussion. And he talked about how the definition of words are so hard. And he said, what's the definition of is? Yeah. No, how does anyone know what the word is means? And, like, he was basically ridiculed for that because it was just a bunch of, like, quasi-linguistic mumbo-jumbo. But I feel like that's 
what's going on on a daily basis with Trump, but like everyone's just totally on board with yeah. it. And there was a period where that was earth shattering. It was it was worthy of mockery. It was he was already f- f- crashing at you know his mm-hmm. his career, so it didn't matter for him his future prospects. But it, it, someone doing that. It would have. It would have ruined them moving forward if they were trying to, you know, he, it, it, because it was a sex scandal and didn't have as high stakes, he did commit perjury and everything. I think it was a little bit different for him. Again, a sex scandal seems so quaint now to the things we're talking about. Even in the, the Bush years, it seemed freaking quaint. But now it's like, yes. And, and the, the, what's worthy of discourse? And, and it's, all, it's, again, accountability over and over. Accountability. There's accountability given immediately to, to Clinton in that. And there's none on a ever on a daily basis with the Trump administration. So, so with Trump's like sort of, I don't call it ramshackled mind or opinions. He's like a baby. Actually, he's a lot like my two year old, except less coherent. Um, and that like, he just flip flops. And, but like, I wonder if that's ultimately what's going to keep him. If he does manage to not get impeached, keep him from being as effective is that he will oscillate between, like, Bannon and Kushner, and, like, he'll just fire people if he doesn't like them. Like, he tried to trademark the, you know, you're fired thing. Like, I think that'll ultimately undercut him so much, or it already has. So that might be a somewhat silver lining, is that he might not be effective because of his temperamentalness. Maybe. Um, Well... Wait, should we say bye then? Bye. See you guys. Bye. Love you. Marxism Today is created by Red Wagner and Tony Schmidt and is a project of the Democratic Socialists of America, Madison, Wisconsin chapter. We are not official spokespeople of the DSA, and the views expressed in this podcast are ours. You can find us on Twitter at RedWagner2, that's the number two, and SchmidtAJ, S-C-H-M-I-T-T-A-J. Our episodes are all available for download on our blog, marxismtoday.wordpress.com You can also share your thoughts about this episode and others on our subreddit reddit.com slash r slash marxismtoday all one word. You can also find information about the Democratic Socialists of America Madison chapter on our Facebook page facebook.com slash dsamadison Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.